So hello and welcome back to Sober Curious Podcast with me, Ruby Warrington. I'm recording today uh, my first ever live podcast recording and I'm in a super, super special space. I truly wish that everybody listening could be here in this space with me right now. Um, it is the brand new Moonrise Studio from Kin Euphorics and it's a... Uh, um, a, a permanent sort of speakeasy, alcohol-free speakeasy in, in Williamsburg in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And I first visited the space about a month ago when it was a building site. <laughs> and it's a testament to the sheer dedication and brilliance of the people behind Kin that it's been transformed into, I'm going to take some photographs um, to share on my social media so you guys can see it, but it's absolutely stunning. And the conversation and the subject for this episode is going to be kind of a big one and kind of an important one and it's something that I get asked about all the time and the person I'm going to be speaking to um, is the probably the the best person to be having this conversation with the topic is the future of booze and I'm joined for this conversation by Jen Batchelor who's the co-founder of Kin Euphorics Welcome, Jen. Thank you, Ruby. And welcoming you to your own space, I should be saying. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Jen. That's right. Well, metaphysically, we're on your podcast, right? (laughs) Auditorially speaking. We're sharing the space tonight. Yes. Um, So a little bit of background. Jen and I met um, a few years ago. Jen was working in the wellness space, and we were introduced by my husband, actually, who had met you and just kind of said, you guys, you think the same. I feel like you should meet. Totally. And we met. And we talked about manifesting the matriarchy Mm -hmm. and the future of wellness. And we went pretty deep pretty quickly. And I was like, thank you, Simon, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we kind of like, you know, we were backwards and forwards with our our projects for a a couple of years, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I remember you invited me for tea. And you said, I have something very exciting to share with you. And you told me about your idea for Kin, which was still in its very nascent phases, I Mm -hmm. guess. Um, and I remember you describing this this product, which was more than a product. It was more like um, a, I don't know, it was a, an idea, I suppose, um, about a different way for us to imbibe and a different way for us to socialize mm-hmm. and actually a whole new category, not just in drinks, but in socializing. Um, can you just share with me like a little bit, take me back to that moment and, and tell me about what the initial kind of spark was for kin and sort of maybe even dive into like what it was whether there was a specific moment when you were like the aha moment when was that for you yeah well it's kind of special because you were able to see the inception of this journey really started when we met I was building a a wellness hospitality company right that Mm. had many facets to it and it was a technology company it was a product company and it was an experiential company that was intended to bring wellness amenities and experiences to travelers who really were looking to stay at the coolest places the ace the standard you know those that that lifestyle boutique property that really had their cultural desires sort of locked down that maybe didn't have as as much of an intuitive wellness offering as that type of traveler may have wish that they mm. did right the the hotel gems were sort of an afterthought at that point a couple treadmills you know and a, and a you know water faucet or something it was just so depressing a lot of times they were just you know overlooked 
at the, at the very most, the amenities consisted of a yoga mat. So for us, it was how do we engage people when they're traveling? A lot of what I do is based in behavior psychology. And so for, for most travelers, because they're in a new place, their minds and hearts are, are actually open, right? The neurochemistry is telling us this is new. Everything about my surrounding is new. And so I'm more aware, but I'm also more open to receiving this information. And so we knew that that would be a great way to introduce new wellness modalities and personalities and tips and tricks to the masses mm. um, and to really an, an audience and a community that valued that type of experience. And so we got all gung-ho. We worked with incredible experts and uh, wellness personalities and everyone from Deepak Chopra to, you know, your local favorite yogi. Um, the disheartening part of that experience was that so often the guest would sign up and be excited about the offering and then perhaps not show up or, you know, show up hungover. You can kind of smell the alcohol in them. <laughs> um, and so there was no judgment. It was just how do we help, you know, mitigate this? Because when you look at and you take an inventory of the hospitality experience, you're sort of set up for failure from the beginning, right, to some degree. You arrive, hello, Mrs. Warrington, here's your glass of champagne, complimentary of XYZ. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you're like, well, damn, there goes my evening run, you know, but you're going to do it because you're indulging, you're in New York City and you want to get down. And right, exactly. Like alcohol for so long has been tied in with our experience of luxury and pleasure. And so it goes hand in hand with that sort of hospitality offering. Absolutely, yeah. And the mindset of, I deserve this, right? Mm. I just got off a five-hour plane. Give me that champagne. Or even, I'm on vacation. I'm on vacation. Or even if I'm on business. It's like yeah. one of those things where, oh, well, I just came from Detroit, and I, I'm in New York, and I'm going to live it up. Mm. And so the, the idea of pleasure, the idea of living it up, um, being centered around alcohol was something that, it was a symbiosis. It was the hotel saying, yeah, you're right. And here's here's how to, how we prove it. The, the bar is in the lobby, right? Yeah. Lobby bar. <laughs> Welcome drink. And when you get the your mini run, bar. the mini bar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. So for us, it was, you know, for me in particular, um, to get off my high horse and to really have an innate desire to meet people where they were, I had to learn more about this ritual. Mm. How did it come to be? What are people really asking for when they reach for that glass of wine? Where they overindulge, what is happening there? Mm. Um, how can we create something that's the most advanced solution for them that still feels familiar? You know, so that was sort of how we came at the formulation process. Was looking at eight thousand now some deba- some debate it's nine thousand, ten thousand years of ritual of drinking alcohol mm. um, to now, mm. which, as you can imagine, is wildly different, right, Jen? Are we seriously undoing 10,000 years worth of conditioning around like how we socialize and relax? Yes. Oh, wow. Are you warmed up? Okay. Have yeah, you I'm had ready, your ladies? Come on, we're, the age, we're in the age of Aquarius. We, we got this. That's we what are, I'm saying. We are the generational pattern breakers in so many ways because we have so much technology now at our fingertips yeah. and so many ways to communicate and yeah. learn that we are in this very unique period in history mm-hmm. where we actually get to change our minds, as mm-hmm. Michael Pollan writes about in his book about psychedelics go. whole other subject but kind of kind of you know conc- runs concurrent mm-hmm. okay that's that's very interesting so it was about this kind of hospitality ritual seeking into and then I guess you realized that actually wow this is something I'm wanting to invest my whole absolutely. you know business and I want my business to go in this direction absolutely 
you know, I think it was at that juncture I realized, you know, I was crazy enough mm-hmm. that I didn't know how hard this was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> and I just wanted to try. Um, I think had I known how difficult it was going to be to create something as game-changing as the future of booze, um, that I might have shied away from it. I think it was a good thing that it w- I came at it with beginner's mind and an open heart and um, that's how we approach everything new that we do at Kin. That is the, the what it takes to be sober curious as mm. well. Because mm-hmm. actually a lot of the time it can be very daunting to lose that social crutch, you know, Absolutely. to lose that or to break out of that very kind of habitualized ritual that we maybe have with our family, that we certainly have with our friends, that we have on dates, that we have with our romantic partners, you know, to want to or to cultivate the kind of the will and the courage to step outside of that even if everything in your being is saying yes I know it's going to feel great Mm. it can require so much um, bravery so having approaching it with that beginner's mind if you're thinking about getting sober curious or you're getting confronted with some challenges on your sober curious path it's really important to return back to that place of like I'm just I'm open-minded I'm going to see how it goes and I'm going to embrace the challenges as they come totally (laughs) yeah Mm-hmm. Or owning your laziness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they say that it's sort of cheeky, but at the end of the day, I don't know if there's a person in this room that hasn't experienced a, or tried a 30-day cleanse, right? And so often we're glamorizing this life of retox to detox and, ver- and vice versa. And the fact is, cleanses suck. <laughs> They're so painful. And why do it just to end up back at net zero? Right. Right? Yeah. I don't drink because I'm, I'm lazy about it. I don't want to have to go back on that 30-day cleanse. <laughs> I'd rather just be happy and blissful and just be chill. Yeah, right. Well, I want to hear more about your personal kind of like um, approach to this as well. Like why, why you, Jen? Why Jen Bachelor? Are you the person kind of like leading the charge with this new category, not just in drinks, but in socializing? I mean, I ask God that every morning. Why me? No, totally kidding. I'm feeling more blessed than ever that I get to to do this, and with the team that I get to do it with, it's it's uh, a true gift. Um, why me? I didn't know this at the time. I think looking back uh, on the last now 30 years of my life, um, this is what I was built to do. Mm-hmm. Um, historically speaking, I come from uh, a line of distillers. My dad and my grandfather actually distilled their own um, Siddiqui, which is a desert moonshine uh, wine and beer in a place where alcohol was prohibited. <laughs> so, so I love the fact that we're in a speakeasy. Like. <laughs> the parallels are not it's, lost on me. <laughs> it's ironic. Um, yeah. But I, what I got from that experience, right? So it was... We lived in Saudi Arabia, uh, did that for 10 years from when I was six to, six to when I was 16. And of course, my most formative years. Mm. And what I gathered, the takeaway from that, of course, because childhood memories are blurry, you get the most impactful um, sort of imprint left on your soul mm. of what something or some um, experience can do. And I always noticed when the bottle would come or when they were toasting or what have you, because my dad gathered people in our community together every Friday night. And it was this sense of joy and camaraderie and community. And that was true, right? We had no family there. Mm. We had no religion there. Mm. You know, we couldn't practice our own religions. Um, So our religion was togetherness. And alcohol was always the go-to. 
It was just the thing that brought everybody together. And I made this beer and I want this, you know, here's this wine I've been brewing in my closet. I mean, I, I personally <laughs> lost access to my own personal uh, bathroom from ages eight to 12. I mean, my dad was, he had essentially turned it into a, a full on still. I mean, he was brewing beer wow. in there. So that was fun to share a bathroom with my parents um, <laughs> coming into adolescence and puberty. Um, but no, in, in all seriousness, I think for me, it was just this idea that there's magic in this mm. and there's mystery and mm. there's danger mm. because I also saw that side of it where alcohol can absolutely tear people apart, mm-hmm. uh, especially in close quarters. Mm. Um, so I just, there's a lot, there's a mm. lot to my personal history that, um, really drove how I wanted to see this unfold. Um, and unbeknownst to me, it took me a year to make that connection. Actually, my dad made it. He said to me one day, he's like, okay, so basically you're rever- reversing my karmic debt. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, like you're helping what me What did I say about us being generational pattern breakers? <laughs> I think that so many of us are, you know, we're, we're doing that in so many different ways. Yeah. That's so cool. What, what was your reply to him? I just laughed. I said <laughs> I did not make that connection until now that we're I'm carrying on the family line, lineage yeah. in reverse. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's still the same thing. I still get a, a thrill out of bringing people together. We're still you, you know honoring. It kin. I mean, could it be any more like perfect, Jen? <laughs> yes, yes. Everything was intentional, but not manufactured, right? Like so much of this really came together organically, and it's it's a joy for me to be able to look back and and really connect those dots. And, but so sort of bringing me back to why now and why me, mm. you know, through that experience in wellness hospitality, I realized very quickly that I had to have my own definition of what wellness was. Mm. That as quickly as wellness was rising into an industry that was being commoditized and abused and, um, you know, bastardized, frankly, you know, mm. you look at hashtag retox detox, that, that's the kind of stuff that's keeping us in the 80s and keeping us in this yo-yo diet nation. Um, and we're about progressing. We're, we're, where's the evolution here? Mm-hmm. And so for me, I had to really redefine what wellness was and that meant just throwing out, throwing the book out, mm-hmm. really redefining it meant learning everything there was to know about it and deciding for myself. And so I ended up going up to Kripalu uh, School of Ayurveda. And I studied as a practitioner there with a focus on herbology and Ayurvedic psychology. And still studying. I always say I'm a forever student. Never ended up, uh, obviously, becoming a licensed <laughs> practitioner um, because never I, say never. Never say never, that's right. Yeah. For the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is where it led me. You know, a Vedic philosophy, especially in treatment, is all about managing the stress or solving for the root stressor or trauma. Mm. Uh, as they believe 80% of all diseases tied back can be traced back to an initial trauma or an initial uh, stress or anxiety. Mm-hmm. So for them, every single treatment, every single prayer mantra is about unraveling the things that, you know, tie us, keep us tethered to that trauma. Mm. And adaptogens are a great way to do that and work with the individual endocrine system and neurochemistry um, to help us just gain a clearer view of what's happening inside. Mm. Um, So with that background, I partnered with uh, Matt Cobble, my now co-founder, who 
came at it from a totally different light. You know, he comes from Silicon Valley and um, has a beautiful background in beverage and CPG, but very much like allopathic, this sense of, okay, let's let's really solve for the root problem here, very precise ingredients. And then, you know, I threw sort of some Ayurvedic knowledge at him and it was born of this beautiful dance. It was born of a, a healthy tension. Mm. Um that really challenged we challenged each other in it and now challenges people to think okay vedic or eastern traditions and western can sort of live harmoniously and that's really the whole point you know Mm. he always jokes he's like one day our drink will be halal and kosher so that multiple (laughs) tribes can can sit at one table right yes i love it that's sage of aquarius thinking right there (laughs) unity this is so cool and i love the fact that you've um been mentioning this idea of kind of like looking at our issues in terms of the through the ayurvedic lens of like any any dis-ease let's say whether physical mental emotional spiritual can be traced back to some kind of an unhealed or unaddressed trauma mm-hmm. and i was kind of going to save this question for the end but we're here already so let's just go there sure. so i think that when we think about the future of booze mm-hmm. we can't not talk about the future of mental health and the future of emotional well-being Absolutely. because ultimately you know so many of us we we use alcohol for all kinds of surface reasons right there's social anxiety there it's the fact it's just everywhere oh there's also the fact that it's super addictive like one of the five most addictive substances on the planet so let's not forget about that but you know ultimately when we really think about why we're using alcohol for so many of us it's a symptom really it's like something that we're using to not be present Mm -hmm. you know we before we got on the recording we were talking about how we're both invested in really just being more present in our lives for ourselves and for each other sometimes that presence can be uncomfortable for us and Mm. a lot of the times the discomfort is linked to something that's like something a lot deeper than we're gonna work out on a Friday night before on our way from the subway to the bar do you know what I mean so I think yeah let's let's talk a little bit about that like how do you how do you how do you see this kind of sober curious movement and this idea of socializing and drinking differently as being linked to the fact that well thankfully it is becoming more okay to talk about our emotional health and our mental health and how we're doing and to question the traditional sort of therapies we might have been given. Mm. Many of these very suppressive therapies, right? So yeah, what are your, what is your research? And I'll just interject here. I think one of the reasons I really wanted to speak to you about this is you've already touched on it a couple of times. You're probably one of the geekiest people I know and I say that with the utmost (laughs) affection. (laughs) (laughs) that I feel like you're like in another life you would have been a scientist because you just love to research you're always pulling like some cool new study out of your back pocket and like you're such a hoard of information so I'd love to know what your research in this kind of wider journey has shown you about the link between this sober curious movement and attitudes to mental health Mm. yeah um gosh where to begin with that question you know we are I just feel so lucky that we're all sort of waking up to this next chapter of our lives where mental health can be a social thing. You're doing it right now. The open conversation is such a healing process, right? Mm -hmm. Already to to just tell your story and release yourself of that is already something that is so healing for people and grounding Mm -hmm. for people. And Mm so with that comes this additional layer of urbanism we're all living in we're moving to urban environments by 2050 80 percent of the world's population will be living in cities and yet we are the most isolated loneliest 
you know, population the world has ever seen. We actually have somebody in the room that has a podcast about loneliness, and it really uh, has now been found out, as research is showing, to be a growing epidemic, Mm. right? So all of this ties back to the myriad mental health issues that we face today as a society, and a lot of these things stem from lifestyle choices. Mm. Um, You know, and, and urban environment doesn't support that really we talk a lot about altering the mind um, with kin and people being very weary oh euphorics alter the mind well the reality is that when you step outside your door in an urban environment you're altering your mind right <laughs> as soon as you disappear down a rabbit hole on your phone you're altering your state Absolutely. of mind oh, you're goodness right. yeah. before you even walk out the door oh. you're flipping through instagram mm-hmm. you're you know you're hitting dopamine you're messing with serotonin levels just through through the swipe effect mm-hmm. right and that's for another podcast on another day. But <laughs> the reality is that we're already doing things. We're running at a capacity that's far faster than we've than our adaptation rate, right? Mm. So our brains are just trying to keep up mm. all day. We're just trying to keep up. And the idea that when you walk outside your door, you're using a finite amount of natural occurring molecules for this and in, in this intent and purpose um, related to kin, we'll, we'll call them bliss molecules, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the ones responsible for the pleasure response in the brain. And those are dopamine and serotonin, namely. Um, epinephrine, you know, there, there are many, but those are the two mm. main ones that we focus on. And it's a feeling of connectedness and the feeling of joy and happiness and fulfillment and, um, you know, true empathy and love. And that's where creativity comes from. But what we found out is that you can't be both stressed as fuck and creative. <laughs> you cannot. You can't feel aroused. You can't feel inspired because you're scared mm. and you're nervous mm. and you're worried about God knows what. Usually it's just the same old ruminating. 80% of the thoughts that we have are thoughts we've had previously multiple times, right? Not to mention the ones that we've inherited from our family that we're not even aware of that are in our subconscious or mm. the kind of wider issues that we're actually all freaking out about yeah. all the time. Yeah. Exactly. But trying to keep a, <laughs> trying to keep a lid on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean that and that's that's the question is in this environment which we all know can be triggering for one reason or another. The news, the New York Times pop-ups that come on your phone and half of them if not more so are about our sitting president and all of the <laughs> decisions he's making on our behalf, you know, you get anxiety that's not even yours. Mm. Right, mm-hmm. it's not even directly impacting your day to day, and yet you're carrying that all day long. Mm-hmm. And so, for us, rather than try to solve everyone's problems with a pill or even a drink, you know, we always say with Ken, we're not looking to cure anything except for perhaps loneliness mm-hmm. and solve for this issue of not having <laughs> a, a solution that's sophisticated and evolved for modern day. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we always say too, if ethanol. Were to drop in our laps today. <laughs> Ethanol being alcohol, by the way, that's like petrol. That's the same thing they put in rocket fuel. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't care what you call it. You can call it tequila. <laughs> you can call it wine or mezcal or whatever your, your poison of choice is. It's ethanol. Mm. And I say that with love and, and non-judgment, but it is ethanol. And at the end of the day, ethanol would be sent right back over the border in a heartbeat when we found out People were ending up in the hospital and people were beating their wives and people were doing this, that and whatever else that alcohol in its worst form does. Mm. 
mm. to humans, right? Mm-hmm. Ain't nobody got time for that, especially in modern day. It's like freelance culture. You need to spend every single hour either enriching your pocket mm. and servicing a client or enriching your life, mm-hmm. right? Design your day. Mm. You, can't, you don't have time for hangovers. Mm-hmm. You don't have time to be fighting with your boyfriend. You don't have time to be crying at the bar. You don't have time not to be creative. No, <laughs> exactly. That's your whole life. Mm-hmm. I mean, and speaking of, you talk about mental health. When we're sitting at a bar crying our eyes out and sh- you know, connecting or spreading, uh, you know, sharing our, our sob stories, do we feel healed from mm-mm, that? Mm-mm. Do we even remember mm. what it felt like? To, to release that to someone else. Not necessarily. Mm. You know, maybe we did need that good cry, physiologically speaking. But at the end of the day, you wake up and maybe you're like, oh, what did I say? Did I say too much? Oh my goodness. And then and you have the vulnerability more. hangover as well as the hangover hangover, yeah. Vulnerability, <laughs> and then it creates anxiety and embarrassment, and we carry that. And sorry, guys, but women, 10 times more. 10 times more the regret, the rumination, the, uh, the physical reaction to hangover is 10 times worse for women. Mm. We have 100 million mitochondria more than men, which means mitochondria being, again, the research <laughs> nerd, sorry. Um, the cell factories, let's call them, um, in our bodies that are responsible for creating fresh cells, building blocks, right? Mm. And we have more than men because we are the creators of beings. Mm-hmm. We have to literally... We are a being factory. Mm. And the first thing that we destroy when we drink alcohol is our ability to create. Wow. On every level, spiritually, metaphysically, and physically. Wow. That's so fascinating. So what are some of the other like fascinating things that you have discovered on this path? I would say like for you personally Mm -hmm. and in terms of the research you've done, what has been some of the most kind of surprising insights or things that have been the most eye-opening for you particularly as it pertains to the way we have been using alcohol without questioning it for millennia <laughs> yeah, I think what's fascinating to me is just the the dissolution and the and the delusion that happens with over glamorizing the drink itself right you think about looking back at the 8,000 9,000 years of history of this thing Cleopatra with Mead you know the the gods even you look at Dionysus right so the idea that alcohol really was a conduit to connect with the divine Mm. right that you're Mm. going to gain some sort of guidance you're going to enhance your experience somehow it was transcendent for you and that was the intention and it was used sparingly as such and in ceremony and in ritual and as I, we now use other plant medicines. Correct, right? Because mm-hmm. they're, they're cultivated and they have purpose and they have, you know, this sense of, you have a sense of ownership when and you get to choose one. a sense of reverence. thousand percent, mm-hmm. yeah, for sure. And you fast forward to really the last, de- the last century, the last 150 years perhaps, um, where you have this sort of, this, this notion of binge drinking, um, and decadence and the decadence but also just the mindlessness mm-hmm. I mean there's no ceremony really other than like the little rituals that we've sort of invented to keep this thing going um, but at the end of the day I mean I, I I don't know about you but I can't remember the last time that I had a transcendent experience at the bar right <laughs> well interestingly since being sober curious and bringing the kind of questioning beginner's mind mm-hmm. to my drinking experiences and just being much more mindful about how the alcohol, if I if I do have it, is 
physically impacting my body. Mm -hmm. There might have, I think there may have been a couple of experiences where I felt something like that, Mm. not necessarily full transcendence, but where I was aware of like, this is something that when I use it this way, this consciously, it can open up parts of my being, Mm. which would necessarily maybe take, you know, hours of meditation to get there or a two-hour breathwork ceremony. There are other ways to get there, Mm. for sure, which don't come with the hangover. But um, yeah, there have, there have been instances, and, and, I, and I love the fact that, you know, you talk about this idea of transcendence. I think so often, particularly when we're talking about not drinking, we could immediately go into that kind of judgmental place, which is like, alcohol is bad, um, we use it to self-medicate. And I even said that in the beginning, right? Yeah. yeah, a lot of the time we're using it to medicate something that's feeling uncomfortable. Mm. But then on the flip side of that, there is a desire for transcendence. There's a desire to reach a higher state of consciousness. And, it, and it's cool to hear you talk about historically alcohol having been used that way. Just it's nowhere, it's, it's nowhere close to how we, we use it in our society. And perhaps maybe the future of booze is actually more of us getting back to a place where we have a reverence for alcohol like I talk in the book about how I kind of consider for myself I've got alcohol in the same category as like ayahuasca mm-hmm. and heroin mm-hmm. right both those substances have a, med- a, a medicinal use they have a, a value mm-hmm. right just not in the way that they're often used mm-hmm. <laughs> sure yeah I mean the the crazy part and if we want to go back to to the research and what and what we've discovered in this process is that people don't realize how incredible of a carrier alcohol is for ingredients, mm. right? Think about the tinctures that exist on, in mm. the world. A lot of mm. all medicines. The pl- plant, I mean, you know, the flower essences are Absolutely. all in alcohol, yeah. Incredible carrier. Why? Because it causes, it goes straight into the bloodstream. The body knows to metabolize it first. The liver's helping you, you know, distribute and filter out the impurities. So obviously at, at the cost of, of your mind, mm. the liver and, and the belly and the brain are all connected. So mm-hmm. It's, it's a pretty ex- expensive treatment, mm. um, but they work and they work in moderation and that's how they should be treated. The problem with alcohol today, especially big alcohol, mm. is that you're carrying a lot of really shitty ingredients. Right. Frankly, right? Yeah, a right. lot of the worst well tequilas out there are full of high fructose corn syrup and you don't even know that. Wow. Why would you put high fructose corn syrup in a tequila? To make it even more addictive? Okay. And sugars also, it gives you a high. Mm. Mm. So there are a lot of factors and facets to commercial production of alcohol that we don't realize. Not only are we imbibing this, but we're imbibing it in a way that is very similar to heroin. Yeah, right. It's really bad product. Yeah. (laughs) Right? And it's addictive as hell. And it's quick. And so that to me is like the saddest thing. I, first of all, I, I still have very deep reverence for winemakers. I have very deep reverence for people that are intentional and really thoughtful about the product that they make, mm. um, alcohol or otherwise. But mm. especially when it comes to alcohol, I think there are some really beautiful practices that are starting to, to bubble up on the scene around low alk, around mm. raw wines, natural wines, people that are thinking about the environment mm. and sustainability in all facets when it comes to the making of their drink. Um, and so, you know, I'm excited to see more of that becoming available to other people. What I don't like is when there is a product on the market that is marketing itself as a healthy alcohol. <laughs> because it's an oxymoron, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and right now, the biggest perpetrators are big alcohol. Mm. 
and I'll just name them. Kettle One in particular is I is it like organic vodka? Is that the kind of thing? Organic it's vodka? low alk botanic vodka. Mm, mm. Um, obviously, they're not working with herbologists to create this stuff. It's not a medicine, and if it is, it's you know certainly not to be served straight up in a martini glass, right? Mm, mm. Um, you know, I just I do have qualms with certain ways that things are positioned because when someone is trying to do something healthier for themselves Mm. it's unfair um to with all the misinformation on the market Mm. to sell them this story because it's not the full one something we see in so many industries yes and areas of life (laughs) yeah jen let's talk a bit about euphoria Mm -hmm. i love Mm. the fact something else i love about you and what you do is that you're as good, if not better than me, about co- coming up with new terms for things. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and um, I think it's so cool. You've, you've coined this term euphorics for this category of mm. drinks that you're creating and that there will be others and there are others sort of coming onto the market as well that mm-hmm. are definitely in that same Venn diagram. Mm-hmm. But tell me, it took, I never, we have, I haven't heard from in your words sure. about how you came up with the term euphorics and also about the entomology of the word euphoria as well. Great. Thank you for asking this question. Yeah. And we're in for a special treat today, too, because the creator of the word, the, my collaborator on this new iteration of Kin, is in the room. Cool. I'll tell you a little history about it. So mm. when we first launched Ken or actually, you know, built a brand around it, right? Put a put an aesthetic to it, created a logo. We thought, what are we really doing? What is this product? And the product was a social tonic. It was something that had benefits to it, but was intended to be sipped socially. So it was really important for us to create this, not only develop a name for it um, that sort of keyed the consumer into how to how to consume it. Um, but that could sort of burgeon a new category on its own. So we were like, kin, social tonic, social tonic, you know, we're social healing and this and that. And it was quite a beautiful notion. But at the end of the day, we realized that bars and bar owners and bartenders and folks in the hospitality world, they started seeing also amongst their patrons a trend towards abstaining and or mm. skipping alcohol. Mm. Um, for any given reason. And so they would say to me, oh, yeah, social tonic, like fever tree. Uh, right. <laughs> like yeah. tonic water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, no, and our product didn't have effervescence and it wasn't at all a tonic water. It didn't have any sugar in it. So I'm like, oh, no. I, and it wasn't for mixing first. with booze. <laughs> no, not at all. Right. So we really knew we were we needed before we launched in a big way to craft a term for this category that was truly ours Mm -hmm. and truly um that truly encapsulated what we were doing and the the desire was to really to put feeling first before use case before anything else it was just everything we do feeling first from the formulation to the naming the nomenclature so our brand director, Natalie Renai Dropcho, uh, and I and Matt, uh, you know, sat in rooms and on long email threads trying to really, again, unpack, now that we've sort of looked at the last 10,000 years, really look very closely at the last two years uh, of crafting this mm. and the feeling that High Road was, was able to, to deliver, right? Mm-hmm. And we realized that euphorics was really a term that encapsulated not only the feeling but allowed us just by the nature of tweaking the word a bit Mm. to capture the movement the story the science 
and the effect all in one. And we're really glad we did that. We knew it was going to be bold. We were sort of unapologetic about it from the start. We did away with Social Tonic very quickly, changed mm. the site. We just knew in our hearts. And um, when you look at the etymology of the word, which is really what sealed the, sealed the deal for us, it was, you know, just poetry. It was such a beautiful metaphor for what's happening. So we'll go into the etymology for a mm. second. Um, Euphoria, which is a term we're so familiar with and that we so often associate with the feeling of being high, Mm -hmm. the feeling of being out of our minds, and it's usually attributed to a psychedelic or, um, you know, something like a benzo or a molly or something like this. Euphoria, the root word of this term is euphoros, which is the Greek or Latin phrase for to bear wellness or to bear well-being. Some folks translated it as to to be well within, right? And it was a term that was actually coined by a physician in the early 1700s. And they used this term to mark the point in which their patient was well from treatment. Wow. So it's like this person came in, they had flu or polio or whatever was happening back in the 1700s. (laughs) Many things at that point. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately, mm. and they would create these tinctures, most of which were, were herbal in nature, and they would mark their progress. You know, it was the days of, of home visits, and they would come and check on the patient and mark their, their status that day. And when they were well, the day that he showed up, and they were in good spirits, they were up, they were no longer, you know, ill, he would say, patient achieved euphoros. Hmm. Not too long ago, right? I mean, that was less than 300 years ago. And we're, yeah. we're now at this place where euphoria has completely devolved into meaning yeah. something really which that we do have a term for, which is called ecstasis. Mm. The root of which means to be without oneself. To be right. outside yourself, right? Complete yeah. ego dissolution. Yeah. That's yeah. the perfect term well, for... transcendence, transcendence. actually. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. And so ecstasis, this feeling like I am one with the universe, that's the feeling of I am not of this plane. I'm not here on the ground. Euphoria is the total opposite expression Mm. of experience, right? Mm -hmm. It's my feet are on the ground and I'm well and I'm aware and and I'm joyful about it. completely present. Completely present. I am whole, ultimately. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And Mm. it is ultimately when we think about, you know, as you sort of started off talking about in the beginning, this idea of wellness has been so bastardized and commodified in in all kinds of different ways. But mm-hmm. ultimately, the reason I think that the wellness, I'm doing air quotes here, mm. kind of trend movement has taken off is because people are so desperate for this euphoria, desperate for that feeling of wholeness and a feeling of wellness, a feeling of being recovered yeah. <laughs> from whatever ails us, you know? Absolutely. And just consciousness. Mm. You know, I think that's that's really the root of all this is that to act from a place of knowing to know yourself right there's such a movement towards self-care to know yourself and make decisions from that place is really a joyful thing Mm. you have agency Mm. that's true empowerment power yeah true power Mm -hmm. um and for us thinking about what kin stood for how we would show up in the world the effect we really wanted to gift that to people we knew that that was really necessary. And in this era of Me Too and all of the other things happening, mm. we knew that didn't exist and mm. we knew that alcohol didn't make it better. Mm. So we wanted to gift people back that sense of 
wellness within. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to do it in a fun way. Mm. You know, so often self-care is sort of in silo. Mm. You see these girls now in bathtubs, and forgive me if anyone in this room has done this before, please. (laughs) There's a time and a place. There's a time and a place. The solo, like, soak in a tub is very necessary sometimes, but not every night. The soaking in the tub (laughs) with a glass of wine selfie. Oh, that, yeah. That. Please. It used to be drinking alone in a bathtub was a sign of distress. <laughs> Something is wrong. Yeah, right. <laughs> but now because we're socializing it, literally, yeah, yeah. we're putting it on social. Well, everybody knows about it, so it's no longer bad. And because you're putting it on social, exactly, you're kind of like, you're not alone, but you are alone. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think, you know, you you mentioned as well, you're if, if anything, you're seeking for or hoping to offer a cure for loneliness because mm-hmm. that is the cure so mm-hmm. often for whatever ails us unless it's you know a, a, a physical condition sure. but so often in terms of our mental emotional and spiritual well-being loneliness can be exacerbating that and actually the cure for it is to come into communion with another human being mm-hmm. or other human beings you know and that's yeah. something that even though we're in these city environments where we're more and more of us are kind of like literally living on top of each other absorbing all the toxic mm. energy and airwaves and Sounds. all the things yeah. <laughs> you know and I think alcohol has so long been peddled as like I said, this kind of social lubricant. Alcohol is how we connect. Alcohol is how we meet up with other people. Alcohol is how we commune with others. And ultimately, again, there's, an, there's a kind of a paradox in that because it's actually preventing us from fully connecting with others and feeling that return to wholeness or mm-hmm. return to true wellness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So often we say, you know, well, if you said it when you were drunk, that's the truth. Hmm. Right. In vino veritas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally a truth (laughs) alternative facts that's right (laughs) may come out while drunk (laughs) and it's true that alcohol lowers inhibition so it makes you less worried or scared about what someone's going to say back or what people are thinking about you but you pay for it the next day Mm. you pay for it in anxiety Mm -hmm. like you said the Mm -hmm. vulnerability hangover Mm. but you also wonder was that really me Mm. or was was i performing something right so often for me i feel like when i was drinking Mm -hmm even though I felt like I was, yeah, just being me and I'm being free, there was an element of performance to it. Absolutely. You know? yeah. Performing what I felt was this kind of idealized social self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of an anomaly in that way. And so with Ken, the ingredients will always be a return to self. It mm-hmm. will always lead to a return to your true nature. The first of which, you know, High Road um, was designed to help you go from this very familiar state of, you know, stress and um, just for uh, for simplicity's sake, we'll call it the fight or flight mode, right? Where your brain is literally telling you you're under attack. Subconsciously, you don't, you realize that, but consciously you don't really. Mm. That's, the ambulance goes by and you're like, well, that's not for me. It's all mm. good. But your primal self feels that. So Kin, in this first iteration, allows you the ease, the facilitation of moving from fight or flight to rest and digest. And in rest and digest, that's safety mode. That's when your brain says you're in a cocoon, all is well, love, have sex, be creative. Be open. Be open. Mm. This area, this mode, this environment, and this self is safe. Is safe. And that's where beautiful conversations can truly occur. That's where unity, empathy, seeing someone for who they are. And that's really why we named it Kin. Because at the end of the day, when you look at somebody across from the bar, 
across the bar and you see yourself in them or you're open and they're open and you're doing this heart thing you're having this conversation and you're truly connecting you're like this is my this is my kin Mm. you know that Mm -hmm. that's when that person goes from stranger masked stranger right to friend or more than friend but less than family so Mm -hmm. we're kindred i love it Jen, so often when people ask me about, you know, where is this all going? Is this a trend? Is it a movement? What's the future of alcohol and the future of drinking? One thing I talk about um, is that I think that alcohol is possibly the new cigarettes, particularly when we look at, you know, younger generations drinking less and less. Mm -hmm. And I would love to hear if there's any research that you've found (laughs) along your way that I could back that up with next time someone (laughs) asks me. I can send you quite a few (laughs) white papers. Um, I think there are things that we can't unlearn. Right. There have been studies that have come out that tell us exactly what's happening to our brains and bodies. And I also think that there's this incredible time of conscious creation upon us, whether you're you consider yourself a creative or not. We're all about optimal performance, optimal thinking, you know, whether you're coming at it from I want to level up at work. I want to, you know, preserve my brain. One research study I want to share with you, and this kind of goes into what Elon Musk is working on, um, is that our lifespan is literally expanding as we sit here, right? Mm. So every day, the average lifespan on the planet increases by five hours. Ooh, yes. (laughs) Every day, right? So the terrifying thing about that is with age comes less pliability of the brain right so our brain is drying out as we get older what that's leading to is the biggest epidemic we've ever seen in alzheimer's and mental health related issues particularly around uh, brain function right so learning recognition and dementia so how do we live another 50 years Mm. and maintain our agency have six Mm. seven eight new leases on life, recreate ourselves, stay at energy, energized and active for our work, for our communities. What happens? when we are going to be, there are going to be so many of us. Mm-hmm. We're going to be living in so much closer quarters with mm-hmm. others. And so, yeah. Exactly. How do we contribute in a way that's, that's actually allowing for fulfillment in our lives and allowing us to uh, contribute to other people's lives? And so the, the impetus from that point of view, whether people are aware of that stat or not, is that brain power is the sexiest power to have right now. We're all talking about mental health. We're all mm. talking about our brains and whether it's from the biohacking standpoint and the Dave Asprey community of the, of the bulletproof biohackers or, you know, just meditators, conscious connectors that are saying, wow, you know what? Meditating one hour a day can increase your telomeres by X amount, <laughs> right? So the the parts of the brain that actually tell the brain whether you're you're young or you're old mm. right so this idea and that actually allows for for a longer lifespan and so i think there is there is this sort of luxury in time and it sort of harkens back to that idea of the the freelancer being so focused on how to enrich their time mm. and maximize their time spent mm. and so i think with that it can't possibly be that drinking less or not drinking at all is a trend because people need they're going to find out very quickly if they don't know already that alcohol is the number one way 
to dry your brain out, mm-hmm. to put it simply, mm-hmm. to wipe out your collagen. So if, if beauty is a, as a factor, it's the fastest way. I and mean, that's one of the, the trends nowadays that are very, uh, that people are sort of keen on. All of these trends can trace back to um, something that poison, whether it's alcohol or just terrible food or whatever it is, um, contributes to. Mm. And mm. so I think we're looking for better ways to live. We're spending a hell of a lot more money lately doing it. Mm-hmm. And people are tired of sipping away, let's call it, their investments. Mm. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I, this, this is here to stay, this for is sure. Here to stay. That's what I say pe- to people. I, it, it's not even a movement. To me, it's a shift. And like you say, once that shift has, has been put in motion, which it now very much is, mm-hmm. there's no, like, turning back. No. We're doing it. <laughs> no, and like I said, if, if anyone anyone who's been on a thirty day cleanse can't tell me that they didn't feel like limitless. Yeah, the power, the energy, like something you can't get from. That's a how ball. I felt the first weekend I ever took without drinking alcohol. <laughs> I mean, it didn't even take thirty days or cleansing yeah, from anything sure. else. It was like you know, as someone who had been used to spending most of my weekend drinking, mm-hmm. not necessarily even to great Palpable. excess. The first weekend I didn't, I was just like, whoa. Yeah. What is this shit? Totally. <laughs> what totally. is this? Uh-huh. That was an altered state of consciousness oh that I was really interested For in. For sure. And Ruby, once we turn them on to really great sober sex, forget it. <laughs> forget it. Game over. Nobody will turn back to drunk, sloppy, quick no one. sex. Never. Okay, so the future of booze is like way better sex like 50 years longer on your lifespan like (laughs) all the good things all the good things (laughs) Jen thank you so so much I'm so glad I finally got to have this conversation with you thank you everybody for listening in wherever you are listening to this podcast and for everybody who came to join us live it's been great to do this in front of all of you guys um yeah there'll be more from Sober Curious soon um that's it for this week bye bye it's been a pleasure Ruby thanks for having me That's it.